What's up, guys? Welcome to Trollier Now Podcast, and I'm here with my co-host, as always. Hey, what's up? It's Dave, Asian of Polemics on Twitter. Excellent, yes. Uh, today, uh, today, we've got a pretty legit show, I think. We have some celebrities on here. We have the original Theobrosians, um, right. J- Jacob Brunton and Cody Leibolt with us. Um, y'all guys can say hi. Hello. There you go. Perfect. Um, but uh, today, we're going to be talking about capitalism. Um, also, um, well, I, let, let's, uh, in case people don't know what Theobrogens is, I guess maybe we should, we should hit on that a little bit and <laughs> explain yeah, what we're talking about. it's a good place to, to kick it off. So, so Jacob, right? I think you're the original, you're the progenitor of this term, right? Or at least the first person <laughs> to be accused of it uh, that I'm familiar with. I, I had actually never heard anyone use that until um, you were called that by, um, uh, by that, that chick a while back. Whiteness so you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think it was Ali Henny. I think that's her name. She's uh, part of Tisby's podcast network. Uh, and she, I, I wrote an article critical of Tisby and, and of her and how they talked about altering the definition of racism. Uh, and obviously, I'm very critical of that. And she <laughs> posted just a screenshot of the article. She didn't want to link to it, you know, because she doesn't want anybody to actually read it and said that she was honored to be mentioned alongside Tisby by the quote-unquote Theobrogens. So that was the first time I'd heard of it too. And, and right around the same time, somebody else uh, accused me of taking Brovinism to uh, 11. <laughs> and I, I'd never heard of that either. So it, both these terms kind of came at me right around the same time. So I was like, all right, you know, I'm just going to own it. So I, I took some, some gym selfies and yeah. uh, put hashtag Theobrogen <laughs> and hashtag Brovinist on it. I think I like Brovinist best. That's my favorite thing about it. I'll, I'll put the, uh, the screenshots up on the screen for, for the viewers. Um, but, uh, but whenever I saw it, it's hilarious that, that those uh, insults came literally while you were at the gym working out. <laughs> well, and I, I'm, I'm typically, if I'm really active on Twitter, like in a, in a short amount of time, I'm probably at the gym. <laughs> I, I usually have my, my spiciest or, or uh, most uh, profound thoughts, I guess, while I'm working out. So. Well, that's when the endorphins are pumping, you know, that's when you start getting a little wild, right? That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The the other thing that I find interesting about this is, so now everybody that's like on the, on the egal or soft complementarian or, you know, quote unquote, anti-racism side of this discussion, um, the like social justice discussion, all of them are using it now, which I think is hilarious because it shows that like a lot of their, their thought leaders are people like Allie. They're people that, that say things like whiteness is wicked and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, and it, it's like they're trying to come up with some sort of derogatory term to, to lump us all together. Because obviously we've got woke or you know social justice warrior uh, that we use, and, and we do mean those derogatorily, uh, yeah. but we could back them up. you know, And, and, and there's right. objective reasons that we would give to why we use them in a derogatory mm-hmm. way. That This is the best they can come up with is you uh you're fit and you like theology oh well i'm, I'm sorry oh no <laughs> bad thing thanks for the compliment exactly. i love how they tried to cover it up too like that uh that sassy chick whatever her name is um um leah b sassy yeah leah b sassy <laughs> yeah right she'll be happy she got mentioned on a theobrogen podcast um but uh but she, she essentially, and this is what all of them do. They try to act like, no, it's just an insult for people who are too, um, I don't know, what would the word be, too stuck in their ways about their theological beliefs, I guess. 
um, which I personally think you should be, but, but um, yeah, again, what's wrong with that? I, yeah, yeah, exactly. But really what it is, is it's, it's a criticism of capitalist Calvinists that are as, as, as Cody, Cody said, you put it the best way. You said that um, uh, liberal uh, Calvinists that are not afraid to call liberals liberals, even though they act like they're not liberals. And that's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, that's essentially what it is, but they try to pretend like, well, no, this is just a term that we'll use for anybody. And it's like, just, we're not stupid. Don't lie to us. Like, like we have, it's like you said, Jacob, we have terms for you too, but we just yeah. don't hide it. Yeah. We're, we're honest about it. We're willing to back it up. Yeah. And, and I, I think, you know, along the lines of what Cody said, it's, it's Calvinists or conservative Christians who have spines, who, who are willing yeah. to act as though the truth matters in everything that they're talking about, not just paying lip service to it. Exactly. Do you guys remember Michael Foster going on Twitter and he said something, he said, look, if you can't, it's something like this. If you cannot look at somebody and say, you're a lion snake, then you get what you deserve. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Cool. So uh, for anybody that doesn't know, uh, obviously Cody and Jacob uh, for the new Christian intellectuals is kind of their brand uh, that they're building up right now. Uh, they do a lot of videos, a lot of YouTube videos uh, discussing sort of these topics uh, and guys, just real quick, for people that maybe haven't dug into you guys' videos very much, um, y'all kind of approach this from a little bit different perspective than uh, obviously what the predominant view in Big Eva would be, right? Um, and you guys talk about this a lot and kind of how the default in the last couple hundred years has been to sort of view God uh, as an altruist and then view, obviously, those who follow Christ um, as, as being imitators of God in that altruism. Um, obviously you guys would, would uh, harshly disagree with that. And you guys would, uh, would call, I believe it's fair to say, you know, y'all would call God uh, a divine egoist. And you should say that uh, Christians really should try to embrace this ideology of sort of rational egoism. Um, so kind of throwing out some terms there, but just so, people who maybe aren't as familiar with you guys is actual more in-depth work on this. Um, do y'all kind of want to lay out what you mean by that really quick and sort of what some of the key differences are between you guys' approach and like the big Eva approach? Jacob, you're the Christian egoist. I'll leave that one to you. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's start with God, right? So I, I, I get this from, I mean, obviously from scripture, but more recently, historically from Edwards primarily, and then also much more recently, Piper, right? Piper uh, would say God's greatest passion is for his own glory. That, that's, that's Piper's, you know, theme of his ministry. But even Piper, and, and here's the thing, most evangelicals would pay lip service to that. Most evangelicals would say, yes, 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 God loves his glory above everything. Or yes, 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 God's glory is, is ultimate. But even Piper doesn't really follow that through in his theology. And, and that's where I'm coming in and I'm wanting to say, all right, let's, let's not just pay lip service to this idea that God loves his own glory above everything. Let's really work this through all of our theology and be as explicit as possible in it. And the, so just an example with Piper, a lot of times he'll talk about God being passionate for his own glory. And you it sounds like he's, he's agreeing with what I would say as far as God being a divine egoist, but then he justifies it. He comes around and, and says, and the reason that this is okay, the reason that we should like this doctrine, the reason that this isn't a bad thing is because God's love for us means that he has to lift himself up, right? He, he has the, the whole thing. 
God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. And so if God didn't lift himself up, then we wouldn't be satisfied in him and therefore he wouldn't be as loving towards us. So really the ultimate reason that God lifts himself up is for our sake. And so at the end of the day, Piper's presentation or justification of God's loving his glory is really altruistic. And so even there, that, that's where I want to push against Piper. And I, I, I want to bring Edwards and, and, you know, the history of Christian thought and especially scripture alongside and say, but even if it wasn't the best for us, yes, it's true. It happens to be the best for us because we're images of God. But even if that wasn't the case, God would be right and righteous and good and glorious if he loved his own glory above everything else. Even if it killed us, that would be the right thing for God to do. And we should love that. Uh, we should we should worship God because of that. That's the motivation for worshiping God that you find all throughout scripture. That's the reason God's people are supposed to love him because he is that great and he's not afraid to say it. He, he, he It's not like he knows he's that great, but he's going to hide it and cover it up in, in false humility. No, he knows it. He loves it. And he wants to share it. He wants to share it with us. And he wants us to wrap us up in that in all of life. So it's something I'm really excited about, obviously, because it's the center of the universe. I mean, it's the, it's the center of creation. If you read Edwards, the end for which God created the world, it's, it's like God's passion for his glory was this overflowing fountain that, that overflowed in creation. And we are the result of that, that overflow of his passion for his glory. And so it's something that should invigorate us and excite us, not something that we should be ashamed of or try to cover up and justify with altruistic um, ideals. I've, st- I've talked a lot about divine egoism. I'll, I'll hand it off to Cody to kind of work that out to the, the rational egoism for, for Christians. And then I, I, might, I might follow up a little bit. Yeah, so you're making the comparison between an egoistic motivation versus an altruistic motivation. And altruism in modern parlance means being benevolent toward other people, giving to charity. But the the kind of altruism that we're referring to is the pathological altruism that says that I must justify every decision I make on the basis of how it's going to help somebody else. If I cannot point to it helping somebody else, then I have no reason to say that what I did was morally right. And that's a philosophical system. There was a guy named Auguste Comte, and he was building off of some of the work of Immanuel Kant and the duty-based ethics. And that all is called altruism. That's the altruism is pathological that we're fighting against. The alternative is to imitate Christ. You know, Hebrews 12, 2, you know, for the sake of the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross. And, you know, he despised the suffering and the shame. And in that passage, it says that we are to imitate him. So we are supposed to seek values for the sake of whatever joy we are supposed to move forward through whatever pain. And sometimes there is sacrifice there. Sometimes uh, I sacrifice, you know, for the sake of my family, for the sake of our finances, or for the sake of whatever, for for my kids. But I don't see it as, in the final analysis, being a loss. I see it as a trade up. And, and that's the kind of Christian egoism that I advocate. I don't think that we should seek to give away values in the final analysis. We should seek to gain them. And that's consistent with the teaching in the New Testament, especially uh, the book of Matthew, the parable of the talents. Come, you know, you're my good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness because you've been faithful. Those are the kinds of things that Jacob and I advocate. So um, um, kind of on that note and to kind of move us into our, our main topic, which we're going to be talking about capitalism and needs-based justice and that sort of thing. I remember one time I asked you a question about um, about why social justice warriors, um, Jacob, uh, why social justice warriors um, 
seem to be okay with erring on the side of the poor and the oppressed. And by erring, I mean also like literally erring, not just leaning towards that side in a, in a non-sinful or non-immoral way, but literally going like, we're going we're gonna to not worry as much about the truth because of, you know, whatever reason that has to do with some sort of oppressed person. Um, and, and your answer, you kind of related it to altruism. So I was wondering if you kind of kind of connect those two things, how you see altruism being kind of the core reason for why the social justice warriors don't care about truth as much. Sure. So I, I don't remember my exact answer to you at the time. So let me know if I'm if I'm going off the mark from what you were thinking of. But the the ideal of altruism is that you you sacrifice anything pertaining to yourself for the sake of what is perceived to be good for other people. And when it really comes down to it, truth, honesty, rationality are quote unquote selfish. That you, you have to judge with your own mind. You have to uh, look at reality with your own eyes and make your own judgments. And, and then to be consistent is something that you have to value as a personal value, right? You, you have to say, I value consistency because I value reality. And, and these, are, these are personal things primarily. And then they have other applications, they have social applications, but they begin with the self. They begin with self-judgment, self-awareness, self-control, uh, uh, and, and virtues that pertain to guiding yourself through your interacting with reality. Well, when it comes to altruism and wanting to sacrifice yourself for the sake of others, ultimately what that's going to mean is sacrificing your vision of reality for the sake of others, right? If, if, if the apparent good of other people seems to contradict your vision of reality, well, who are you, you selfish jerk, to hold on to your own vision of reality? You should sacrifice your vision of reality for the sake of their vision of reality. It doesn't matter if it if it's true or not. Who, who are you to say that you are the one who knows what's true? You selfish jerk. Relinquish your selfish view of reality and subject yourself, submit yourself, sacrifice yourself to the group, to the other. Yeah, and we see that a lot uh, right among some of the more woke adjacent uh, big Eva, mid Eva types. Um, and where that really seems to play out, I think, is <clears throat> kind of the idea that um, standpoint epistemology, right, which I know is something that you guys uh, discuss a lot. Uh, and really, if we were kind of going to distill that down uh, from the woke perspective into a sentence or less, it would essentially be uh, that we need to give what I would call, and I think what you guys would call, an undue weight to these lived experiences um, kind of kind of that people have and then that ultimately gets imported into uh, theology to a degree but really to orthopraxy right is, is where we really see that come out um, so Cody I'll kick it to you uh, I know you you kind of talk about this a lot uh, I know that you sort of see this as a as a big issue and really to me this comes down to um, undermining the objective truth of scripture almost to the point uh of at, at times uh denying it right so kind of where would where would you go from there what do you see as kind of the key issue amongst that ideology and mentality 
Well, talk to me a little bit about some of the examples that you and I have seen on Twitter. What specifically, like like any person or any specific thread of comments? Uh, well, so we already kind of talked about uh, Ali Henney, who um, sort of sort of came at Jacob, right? So this wasn't on Twitter. This was a conference that she spoke at a while ago, um, and I'm sure you guys are familiar with it. But essentially, it was the the whiteness is wicked speech that she gave that really kicked a lot of this stuff off, right? Um, and it's interesting because when you when you listen to it or when you read through what she actually said, you know, uh, she she lays out the problem as she sees it, which a lot of these woke characters like to do. They rarely like to focus on solutions for reasons that we'll get into later. But but essentially, because they know those solutions are um, political in their ideology and lean towards a more leftward view, right? So I think when they're trying to extrapolate that, they're a little more quiet about it than they would be just sitting around uh, the fire with their friends. Um, but specifically, well, that... what, specifically what she gets to in the end when she comes kind of to her conclusions is what we need to do is we need to essentially listen and believe these people that are in their church uh that are in our churches listen and believe them and then she even gets into uh because of their lived experiences voting in accordance with that and um kind of okay. seeking solutions um if, if that makes sense in accordance with it so have you seen quite a bit of that as well yeah, I would just make a mention that the lady that said whiteness is wickedness was someone else. It wasn't. It, it was. Uh, it, was it, it was a Kemeny Uwan. Uwan. Yeah. She was also. She's also in Tisby's network, but she's not the same one as Ali Henney, who made the comment about my article on Theobrooks. So I, I pulled Perfect. up an Ali Henney tweet that will that will prove what you're saying, and it's. Uh, she says whiteness uses intellectualism as a way to rationalize oppression. Intellectualism allows oppressors to distance themselves from the emotions slash experiences of the oppressed and to maintain power when those experiences and feelings don't fit certain intellectually derived categories. Now, intellectualism, I don't know if she had for the new Christian intellectual in mind, but the way that we have interacted with her suggests that she might have had us in mind. And uh, so this is a this is a common cultural Marxist idea, which is that any truth claim is really just a bid for power. And you've probably seen the Philosoraptor, you know, the raptor that's scratching his, he's, he's thinking, he's like, wait a minute, what if the ultimate bid for power is telling everybody else that any truth claim is a bid for power? And that's what she's doing here. Uh, she's basically saying there's no way for us to bridge the gap intellectually. Your intellectual approach to solving these political problems and social problems is really just a bid for power. And so she's saying, therefore, I can disregard every argument from Cody or Jacob and Cody and Jacob must simply listen and simply listening and validating and mourning with those who mourn, regardless of whether they're mourning rationally. That's the message that she is promoting. Let me add yeah. regarding standpoint epistemology. This is something that has actually been brewing in the church for decades, especially in missions departments or in mission studies because of, uh, well, a number of things. First of all, there, there's the epistemological confusion that Kant brought in of saying that, you know, you, you don't have access to objective reality, you, you just have your own perception, and then everybody else has their own perception. So it's, it's this whole game of we're all feeling around the elephant, and, and we just have to, we have to come together and sing kumbaya and tell each other what we're feeling or what we're thinking and what we're seeing, so that we can come to a, a, a whole picture together, because we all have limited 
access to reality, uh, which is uh, obviously false because the person who's saying it would have to have objective access to reality. So it's, it's a contradiction. Uh, but that, that comes from Kant, and a lot of Christians soak that up because it sounds really humble. Again, it sounds altruistic. It sounds really nice and, and loving and, and, and winsome, right? I don't have the whole truth. I, I'm so humble. You know, we, we often come together. So th the church started to eat that up. But then what really put it on hyperjet was this idea that race and culture are the same thing. And this is where it really took root in missions departments because, you know, when you're, when you're going out in the mission field, you don't want to be one of those evil imperialists who's trying to, uh, to convert the people in Africa or in East Asia or whatever. You, you don't want to tr be converting them to Americanism. You want to be converting them to Christianity. And that's true. But the idea was that their, their race is inextricably tied to their culture which culture has to do with ideas and values and if that's the case then you can't you can't try to change their ideas and values so th they have to become a christianized version of their culture's ideas and values and their, their value systems uh which leads to this standpoint epistemology on uh, hyperjet emissions departments where you say well no you, you can't claim that that's objectively true because this culture over here doesn't believe that and if you try to contradict this culture over here well you're being a racist you're being an evil racist imperialist because to say that one culture is better than another or more true than another is to say that uh one race is better than another or closer to the truth than another and so by by the church taking in both that defunct kantian epistemology and then also the idea that race and culture are inextricably inextricably linked it really brewed a lot in missions departments over the last few decades. And it, this whole woke stuff, I mean, it, that, that puts it on hyperjet, but it's been cultivating in the church for a long time. Yeah. And um, I would say that's kind of a good transition into, into more specifics on our main topic because so, so JD Greer gave a speech recently. What was it at the SBC committee, something I'm not even sure exactly what that is. Yeah, their their <laughs> annual meeting, I believe. Uh, yeah, I could be wrong on that, but I think it was their annual meeting. Their their big convention, you know. Yeah, and he the essentially Southern Baptist Convention, if you will. Yeah, yeah, and he essentially did exactly what you're talking about, Jacob. Uh, but he even went farther than that. He said we need to allow people to bring their politics into the church, right? And of course, he's also connecting that to race. So he's saying that like your politics is part of your race. He doesn't say that specifically, but what he says amounts to that essentially, um, um, as well as your cultural leanings, as well as the type of music you like in service and stuff like that. Politics is somehow a part of that, which would mean like voting for Democrats and 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 voting for socialist policies or massive welfare state and that sort of thing, because in their culture, supposedly they it's in their culture, they supposedly view that as a moral political system. And we can't make judgments on the political system or those the, that political ideology itself because that is somehow connected to who they are. Um, um, but so so one way that we see that is mm -hmm, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say real quick, uh, kind of to build on that. Another thing that I find interesting is um, this argument from kind of the top in Big Eva has been brewing for a while, uh, but we also I think do well to remember that these are the same people that five years ago uh, would criticize people like us on the grounds of, hey, you guys are thinking too politically uh, when it comes to gospel issues. 
you know, mm-hmm. um, to which my response to that, and I want you guys to take on it as well, but my response to that is s- sort of, I mean, of course, the gospel is political in, in certain ways, right? And we can get into that as required. But really, the thing is, is all of this new pushback that we're seeing from the woke types, it's all political, right? I mean, you're not seeing these guys go to scripture and exegete the text and bring out their views of the text and how that backs up with what they're saying. Very, very rarely do you see that. Um, so my kind of response to that is, well, when all of the new disagreements that are being brought into the church where the battle is currently being fought, when all of those are political disagreements, you should expect pushback on political grounds. Um, so is that kind of how you guys see the problem as well? Or, or is it a little bit deeper than that in y'all's view? So I would say that I, I want to back up to the to the fundamental of look, is politics an objective moral issue or not? Like, is there objective morality when it comes to political issues? Yes or no? And they want to say no, right? Because of the standpoint epistemology stuff, because they don't want to offend, because they think it's racist for all these various reasons. They want to say no, but they they won't be consistent with it because you can't be consistent with it. You can't ever be consistent with that type of epistemological or moral relativism. So they're going to smuggle in their own versions of objective morality when it comes to politics they're just not going to say that that's what they're doing and and that's what we see going on and so i I think the quickest and most efficient way to snuff it out is just to say look answer the question is this an objectively moral issue yes or no is there objective moral principles that can be known here that christians ought to assert yes or no And, and make them answer the question and if they don't then humiliate them as much as you can for being evasive and, and refusing to answer the question, because that really is the, the rock bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so so that hits on something too that, um, so Cody, you actually influenced my thinking on this a lot. I don't even know if you'll remember uh, putting this tweet out, but it's probably been a couple of years ago uh, at this point, but essentially, and it's not gonna be an exact quote, but you guys have talked about it a lot, so you'll know what I'm getting at. Uh, you essentially said, you know, people will sometimes ask me, why do I, assume the logical conclusion of the argument that this person is making and initially go straight to that in my argumentation. Uh, And essentially what you said was, this forces the conversation forward, right? Because because if, if all I do when someone presents something where the logical conclusion, be it the needs-based theory of justice, which is obviously kind of where this is headed, uh, but when they present something like that, you know, and I just say to them, this is a Marxist concept, right? Obviously, they're not going to come out the next day and say, well, you guys are right, I'm a Marxist. No, but it forces them to then delineate between what they're saying and what this concept that they're advocating means, as opposed to if you just ask them, well, what do you mean by this? And then you see further obfuscation uh, along those lines. So if you want to kind of talk about that a little bit, um, feel free. Yeah, I learned that idea from Tom Gilson. He has a book about apologetics and about talking about Jesus with people that don't love Jesus and that don't believe in him. And he said, look, the way that you're engaging with people on Twitter these days is probably not the way Jesus engaged with people on a one-to-one situation. When somebody would come up to Jesus and try to stump him or make some kind of claim that was not true, Jesus would not uh, would not say, okay, let's hypothetically grant your premises and then let's talk about whether it's reasonable. Jesus would think about what kind of person would it have taken to say such a dishonest thing? And then he would have just told them, this is why you're wrong. You err because you don't know the power of God or scripture. 
You err because you're ignorant. That's the kind of strong statement that Jesus would say. And immediately he, uh, he broke the rapport. And that's good because if you, if you allow there to develop a rapport between you and somebody who is lying about God, then what you're miscommunicating to every viewer is that it's acceptable for there to be a rapport between a Christian and somebody who's lying about God. You must communicate to your hearers that this man hates God and is a liar. And you must start by doing that. And then you can ask him, am I wrong? Did I, did I take you wrong? Did I, did I misunderstand the implication of what you're saying? Because this is the implication. And then you leave it to him to either be quiet or to backpedal. Well, um, yeah, uh, so from there, um, maybe I know, I know, uh, Dave, in that you kind of mentioned um, how they won't come out and say they're Marxists, of course, uh, because uh, it, as, as Vody Bachman has said, he, he had a sermon that he gave once, or maybe it wasn't a sermon, maybe it was a speech at like one of the conferences or something, G3 or something like that. And, uh, and, and he said that they'll, they'll call themselves whatever it is that they decide to call themselves and not Marxists because everybody knows Marxists is bad. So they're, they're not going to do that. But that kind of, that yeah, kind of hits on, on our name point here is that, um, they, no one wants to tie themselves to the ideology responsible for 100 million uh, deaths predominantly through starvation <laughs> last century. You know, it's that's not a popular thing yeah. to try to bring into the church. Um, yeah, exactly. But, yeah, but exactly, I think where you were going to go with it as well is what they will do um, is they will um, advocate for this idea of a needs-based theory of justice. So yeah. uh, you got, you guys can define it deeper if you want. If I was just going to give kind of the one sentence definition of it, essentially it would be that if someone has a need, doing justice towards that person or towards that group is meeting that need, right? Um, and then, for example, if they have a need that I can meet, it's it's almost an obligation at that point to meet that need, regardless of the circumstances that brought about that need, whether it actually be a legitimate need or whether it be something else. Um, so, Jacob, I know I saw uh, you kind of talking about this in one of your recent videos. Do you want to expand on that a little bit and, and kind of bring it out for us? Sure. So the the important part there is that it it is uh the well the, the old marxist summary and, and oddly enough it is a, a marxist uh summary is from each according to their ability to each according to their need and that's what justice is uh, and it's important to note that this does not necessarily mean the government getting involved to carry out this justice right you can have this needs-based theory of justice while still saying but the government shouldn't do it you you should just feel guilty if you're not meeting that standard, which is what most of the big Eva guys do. Uh, Keller is a great example of this. Keller is very careful to very specifically say, I am not saying that the government should redistribute wealth. Maybe that's a good policy. Maybe it's not. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say, you know, uh, but he does say, nevertheless, regardless of what the government should or should not do, your view of justice should be this needs-based theory of justice, where it, it is an injustice for you not to give to the needy according to your ability and and he even goes so far as to say you are robbing from them you are stealing from which means that ownership is determined by need which is the exact opposite of the biblical view of justice and and what we would say is you know the classical view of justice which is ownership is determined by 
merit or by, by what you earn, what, by what you cause to come into existence, uh, regardless of whether you need it or not, and regardless of whether someone else needed it more or not, right? So th there's, there's two conflicting major views of justice here. And the one that's predominant in evangelicalism and especially in the culture is this needs-based theory of justice that says justice and proper ownership is determined by what is needed being given or yeah being given to those who need it from those who are able to give it and and again that that's ultimately going to necessarily result in the government getting involved because if it really is theft well the government's supposed to correct theft right so it's going to necessarily involve the government eventually but you don't have to right now say that you should that the government should be involved in order to hold that position and that's where a lot of the big eva guys are right now yeah and we and we know that's I mean, if we're honest, they're not necessarily arguing for the government to get involved now. And, and not only, like you said, is that where it leads to, but we know that's really where they're at and because it comes out from time to time, like when they talk about reparations or you know, those sorts of things. Um, so we know that that's eventually where it's, where it's leading to. Um, um, but also, um, dude, uh -huh. to one of the biggest issues, I think one of the biggest places where you see this specifically is in the abortion uh, issue, right? Um, so you see Phil Vischer do this all the time. You see Lecrae do this. You see uh, other big Eva figures that will talk about this openly. And essentially what they'll say is, okay, well, yes, um, abortion is bad. Maybe we should look towards laws that would uh, curb that or whatever. But really what we should focus on is lowering that by these various social programs that ultimately are redistributing wealth. You hear it all the time. If they had better access to health care, if they had better access to child care, uh, those types of things. Um, so I think that is is kind of one that that's currently being talked about openly. Uh, so maybe it's an, an easy one to hit on because we can all point to examples that we've seen of that. Um, so how would you guys kind of address that uh, that idea? Is, is it something that we should just reject outright and say, no, this is a needs-based theory of justice. This is a Marxist concept. Uh, that's not how we need to approach this. Or do you guys have a more specific approach to that that you would employ? Your thoughts on that, Jacob? Do you mean specifically as applied to the abortion issue or more broadly? So more broadly in general, but maybe if you guys um, want to tie it to the abortion issue, just because that's so blatant right now, you know so, what I mean? It's one that you see so commonly. So my, my immediate thought on that abortion issue is you big Eva guys who are saying that, and, and I have to confess, I haven't been super active on Twitter recently, so I haven't seen the, the direct um, source material for that. But anyone who's saying that is a, is a damned liar if they're claiming that abortion is evil or that abortion is killing of a human being because they are not going to say the same thing about adults murdering adults. They're not gonna say, well, the, the, the way to stop this is not to have the death penalty or not to have imprisonment. It, it's to uh, do economic redistribution so that people are less tempted to murder other people. They're not gonna do that, right? And if they're not doing that, then that proves that they don't actually think about the unborn as equally human with an adult human being. They've got a completely so, different standard that they're applying there. And, and that's, that's a damnable thing that we ought to call them out for and condemn them for very loudly and, and very specifically. Yeah, hundred percent. And, and I use the example pretty frequently that, um, you know, 
if that's the the route that you want to go, the argument that you would want to make, well, I'm sure if you just gave every adult in America $5,000 a month, the murder rates would probably decrease, right? Because let's be honest, people are just going to stay inside and play <laughs> video games all day or whatever, you know? But that's not a solution. You know, that's, that's just not getting to the core or the heart of the issue. Um, so, yeah, yeah. so... So needs-based theory of justice kind of in general. Um, yeah, so, so and, how, and- How do we war against that? Well, you're, and you're right to point out that that's the, the more fundamental problem is that you, you don't correct an injustice by other injustices. Uh, justice is justice. And th- there's no way to advocate for justice by turning a blind eye to injustice. That, that will not work, that, that doesn't work, it doesn't make any sense. And, and so, the, and, and the reason why uh, we would say it's an injustice is because it, it is a corruption of justice uh, because it's, it's utilizing this needs-based theory of justice. So how do we combat the needs-based theory of justice? Uh, I mean, there are a number of practical arguments you could make, and you see that by a lot of conservatives and even a lot of libertarians. There are a number of sort of historical and uh, quasi-moral arguments you can make, but the ultimate one that I think we Christians need to be availing ourselves of is just going straight to the concept of justice in the Bible, specifically in the gospel, and to point out that the, the needs-based theory of justice turns the gospel on its head. It turns the justice of God in the gospel on its head. And, and this is hard for a lot of Christians to wrap their heads around. When I talk about God's justice being merit-based rather than needs-based, all these Christians say, but what about salvation? I, I'm not saved by my merit. I'm saved by grace. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's grace. That's not justice. So it, it's like the, all of the basic lessons that Christians learned about the distinction between grace and justice go flying out the window as soon as it actually matters, as soon as they actually start trying to apply it to other areas of life, which tells me that they didn't really believe it to begin with. And that's scary because, I mean, we're talking about reformed teachers here who, I mean, if anyone is supposed to be uh, well-versed on the differences between grace and justice, you would think it would be reformed people, especially reformed teachers. So just to flesh it out, the, the gospel says that God would be just to condemn all sinners to hell, to punish all sinners in hell for eternity. That would be justice because of the fact that justice in God's eyes is merit-based. It's you get what you deserve, regardless of what you need. Because I don't need, I don't know about you, but I don't need eternal torment in hell. I need God to be kind to me and to lift me up and to hold me into being and to bless me for eternity. That's what I need. But that's not what I would get if God was just. If God was, if it was, God was just purely to me, apart from Christ, justice would be me getting eternity in hell. And the same with every other sinful human being, which is every human being who's ever lived besides Christ. So, the, and what we get through Christ is grace. It's undeserved favor, meaning it's not merited. It's, it's, it's undeserved. And that's what salvation is. So, if we were to apply the needs-based theory of justice to God in the gospel, it would flip it on its head, and we would have to say that God is a moral monster because he would be giving me what I don't need, hell, 
and withholding from me what I do need. He would be a stingy, selfish miser who's uh, unjust and withholding from me and from the rest of humanity what we truly need. So yeah. go ahead, Matt. Oh, uh, were you finished there? Go, go ahead and finish if you want. Yeah, so uh, the, the long and the short of it is, if you believe in the, the Christian doctrine of God's justice and the death of Christ on the cross, the, the historic Orthodox view of the gospel, you absolutely cannot believe in this needs-based theory of justice. They are, they are completely contradictory in every way, which means that the true view of justice is a merit-based view of justice. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong to ever give something that's unearned, right? It's good to picture forth the grace of God in the gospel by giving what's unearned to those who need it, as long as you don't pretend that they deserve it because they need it, because then you would be operating off of that needs-based theory of justice, which would be lying about the God of the gospel. Yeah, exactly. What I found fascinating about some of the criticisms that you got, um, particularly whenever you were you were comparing capitalism to uh, to God's justice, um, in that in that with capitalism you get what you earn, so God is a capitalist because He's going to give you what you earn. Um, um, but um, what I found interesting is whenever people would jump to like heretic, like I could see like them, you know, not not quite understanding the concept you're making and and kind of and kind of going, well, I think that this analogy isn't quite accurate because of you know X Y Z reasons, whatever but they just jumped straight to heretic. And these were like fairly well-known individuals that were reformed. And, and I'm like, I, I don't see how you missed the point that bad. <laughs> it is really surprising. And it tells me that for a lot of these people, the, the orthodoxy that they affirm really is just parroting talking points. It, it really does seem a lot of times like they don't truly understand it, which is scary. Mm -hmm. And another yeah, and I think, I think too, because of this, um, I think one of the next things that we'll see to start being under attack is that doctrine of eternal conscious torment uh, of hell, you know, and, and I always kind of say, you know, all you have to do if you, if you want to see where some of these big evil leaders are going to be at five years, um, is look back at the people that were, were where they currently are five years ago. You know, I think uh, the Jory Micahs, I think, you know, the Rachel Held Evans types, the people that started embracing some of this woke stuff and then just slid headlong into it. And none of these guys would affirm eternal conscious torment. You know, maybe if you vote for a Republican, maybe that's the only thing, right? Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, yeah, I joke the about The unpardonable that, sin. Exactly. But, um, but you guys can kind of see that trajectory already. So I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing some books uh, you know, some some I'm just asking questions type of books that come up here in the next, yeah. you know, five, 10 years. But that's conjecture. So we'll see. Yeah, that, well, that's that's potentially true. But here's the really important thing that we all need to remember. And this is not just to this particular ideological issue, but in general, you, people are inconsistent. It's possible to have cognitive dissonance. And it happens. All We all have it to some degree or another. Yeah. Right. And so the fact that you know, let's say Keller, uh, he, we would probably argue, and many others would probably argue that he's held to these ideas, these need-based theory of justice and things like that for decades, potentially, right? The fact that he hasn't yet explicitly denied things like eternal conscious torment or other things like that is not evidence that those beliefs don't imply 
the uh, elimination of eternal conscious torment. It, it's not an evidence against, it's not an argument against our argument, or it's not a, a, a legitimate objection, right? It, it's true that this idea entails or implies this idea, whether mm -hmm. or not different people carry it out to that same extreme within a given period of time. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I agree 100%. Um, I, I remember, uh, what's his name? Tim, Tim Dukeman pointed out once we brought this up on another podcast that, uh, that, um, he really doesn't understand how, how people can, can look at somebody's past orthodoxy or even current orthodox beliefs and, um, and say, well, this guy definitely can't be a heretic. He's like literally every heretic throughout history confirmed like 90% of orthodoxy. Yeah. Right. <laughs> orthodox beliefs. I mean, cool. You, you believe in the Trinity. Great. You should. That's a requirement. That does yeah. not mean you're not quickly sprinting down the slippery slope of liberalism, yeah. you know? They haven't taken basic logic. They don't know the distinction between necessary and sufficient. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to do you want to extrapolate on that uh, a little bit, Cody? Oh, just you. It's just a, a basic logical idea that you could say that if if this is the case, uh, then then this is also going to be the case. Um, and if, if you know the expression if a then b, that means that a is sufficient for b. That's that's not the same thing as saying that. Um, there's a distinction between necessary and sufficient and and a lot of times people think oh well you know this can cause it or this can be involved in causing it and, and therefore they say that there's this thing and therefore this thing must also be true but it doesn't necessarily follow yeah so basically you're saying that like um so it's necessary in order to be a christian it's necessary that you affirm um um uh, christ's deity Right. Yeah, but affirming but, Christ's deity is not a sufficient condition for calling somebody a Christian because yeah. they might not even be referring to the same Christ that you are. It could be a, a Jehovah's Witness or something. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Exactly. Well, cool. Cool. Yeah, um, and, what... and 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 likewise, right? Somebody can embrace the needs-based theory of justice, which is a sufficient cause to slide into all types of heresy, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they'll affirm it because they may abstain from affirming it out of tradition or uh pressure or whatever else you know i, I think too it, it kind of works both ways would you agree with that i think the technical use in the word sufficient and necessary you'd have to think through so i i would say uh the idea of the needs-based theory of justice is sufficient to entail uh the rejection of eternal conscious torment or the rejection of the wrath of god or the rejection of penal substitutionary atonement which are all logically linked uh but that's in the realm of ideas that that doesn't necessarily entail that a given individual will follow those steps again because people are capable of cognitive dissonance people aren't perfectly rational or perfectly consistent uh the way that we might like them to be and, and in those cases it's blessedly so right it, it might be that the holy spirit is holding them back from doing even worse error than they would do mm. if uh the holy spirit left them unrestrained with that uh evil idea and let them go full bore into it right so it, it, in some ways that that's a that's a good thing that we should thank god for but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't expose it as it it will let necessarily lead to this idea if taken to its logical conclusion and but for the grace of God, but for the restraining power of the Holy Spirit, you would already be there, right? I, I would say that about Keller. A apart from the sovereign restraint of the Holy Spirit upon his life, if he took these ideas seriously, he would already be apostate. Yeah, that's that's a good point that I hadn't really, uh, hadn't really ever thought of. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know, there's one thing uh, that you mentioned earlier, and uh, maybe this is kind of kind of going off topic a little bit, but I think it's still kind of related. Is um, and you can just kind of notice from your argument that y'all are arguing almost entirely from a perspective of morality. Whenever the vast majority of people who argue against the social justice warriors or against socialism and 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 for capitalism do so on a, on a practical basis, right? Like, like for instance, let's, let's kind of bring it back to capitalism. So, so they'll argue that capitalism lifts people out of poverty, right? And so socialism puts people in poverty on a, on a mass scale. Um, and that's, that's more of a practical argument. Now there are moral implications within that, but overall that's a practical argument. And, and, and what I see y'all do a lot and I, what I think is the right way to argue these points is to argue from from a perspective of what is immoral and what is moral because ultimately that is what matters um if it, for instance if it's practical to 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 kill babies in the womb that doesn't mean that we should do it right if it reduces crime if it helps in the long run less people die because less people end up uh, being murdered by criminals that would have been supposedly came about because these kids would have grown up in poor neighborhoods yada yada, yada right um then that doesn't mean that we should do it. The ultimate reason why we should or shouldn't do things is, is it moral or immoral? So I was wondering, did you have any more thoughts on that? Kind of want to hit on, on why you make uh, moral arguments rather than practical arguments and, and, and just, just anything around that subject. Yes. Yeah, so you'll, you'll see that it's the, the dynamic of why the liberals or the leftists always win is very similar to the the thought experiment that you just did with the abortion issue. It's just it's, it's a separate uh, set of uh, principles being applied. But when we talk about economics, leftists have a moral agenda, right? That they they believe morally in the needs based theory of justice, and and, and that's the the sort of Marxist utopia, whether you call it Marxist or not, uh, you know whatever name you want to put on it. That it is a moral agenda that says here's the moral ideal this needs-based theory of justice from each according to their ability to each according to their need universal equality or universal equity however they want to dress it up it's a moral ideal and when you've got a moral ideal it doesn't matter and everybody knows deep down everybody knows deep down that it doesn't matter if you failed in trying to attain that ideal a hundred times you still get back up on your feet and you work towards that ideal right so it doesn't matter that socialism has failed everywhere it's been tried and that millions of people have died because of it that doesn't matter because it's the moral ideal so we have to keep trying yeah right that that that's why it keeps winning um that you know so in this case uh abortion uh, the 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 analog would be abortion would be you know capitalism right uh capitalism it just is morally evil in their eyes just like we would say abortion just is morally evil and therefore, no amount of practicality or arguments from practicality are going to dissuade you from pursuing the elimination of this moral evil that they call capitalism, right? Just like no, no amount of practicality should persuade us from uh, eliminating the moral evil of abortion, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an analog in a different direction, but you see the application and you see why conservatives will always lose so long as we don't rebut their moral ideal and supplement our and and, um, and substitute it for a, a better one to to fight them on the ground of morality. Uh, unfortunately, most conservatives implicitly agree with their moral ideal of a needs-based theory of justice or of some form of e equality or things like that. 
because conservatives don't have a better moral picture or just because conservatives haven't thought or learned to think morally in principle. And so what they do is they resort to just making practical arguments. But as we just saw, that's never going to win. That, uh, that's always going to be a losing strategy. And I'm sure Cody's got more to say on that as well. Yeah, the idea is that you have to own the moral narrative. If you own the moral narrative, then you will prevail rhetorically. Whereas if you seek just to make as many two quoqua arguments, you're a hypocrite. Ha ha, you said A, but you also said B, you're a hypocrite. You play Charlie Kirk like Charlie Kirk on Twitter. The only thing he ever does, which he gets a million retweets every time he does it, is look, the liberals are hypocritical. They don't care yeah. what you think about their hypocrisy. What you have to do is own the moral narrative. And what, what that means is that you have to get past the idea of this low-level rhetoric that says, oh, see, he said one thing one day and he said another thing another day. You have to establish the foundation for what you are positively asserting. And the way that you establish the positive is by looking at the identity of the, the things that are in question. So, for example, you say, look, this man worked. This man spent his time and then he produced something. And now you're going to come and claim that you have an entitlement to 50% of what he created. That's like an entitlement to 50% of his life. That's the same thing essentially as man stealing, as enslaving somebody. And you know, when I, when I look at my paycheck, I see that. I, I see, wow, they really yeah. did take a lot this time. And so they, they made a claim upon my life. And I, I would ask them to justify their claim. Why do they own my labor? Uh, what, do, what does ownership mean? And uh, the, the concept of ownership that's found in the Bible, that's found in human history is always that well, when you do the work, uh, when you develop something, then you are entitled to dispose of it how you choose. That's what ownership is. It's the, the ability to dispose of it how you choose. And it's based on the fact that you're the one that brought it into being. Yeah, yeah, exactly. One thing that I've kind of noticed, and I want you guys' take on this, is something that I think is really concerning about this idea of, of needs-based theory, justice, and, and functionally redistributive economics, right, is, is kind of what it ultimately uh, boils down to. It, it destroys, in my view, an entire category of the Christian life, which is Christian charity, right? Because charity by definition cannot be compelled, uh, you know? And, and so if the moral argument that these uh, middle of the road to liberal people are trying to make is no, you actually owe these people this because you're a Christian, that is no longer charity. Um, what do you guys think about that? Uh, Cody, I think I've seen you, you've uh, talked about this before, so I'll kick it to you. Oh, Jacob is the one that uh, has recently been thinking about this issue. Okay. <laughs> Can you get back to me? Uh, so I, I would point out again, so th there are two big problems here. One is what you mentioned, that uh, charity by definition can't be coerced. And, and a lot of times they do want to coerce it through governmental redistribution. But let's say that you, you even take that apart. Let, let's say that um, they will concede, no, the government shouldn't force it there's still the idea that you owe it and and that that's going to weigh on your conscience and that still is just as bad it, it still is going to ruin the concept of charity because charity is supposed to be a picture of the grace of god in the gospel it's supposed to be a picture of undeserved favor or undeserved help which means that you can't do it out of a sense of owing it to the person you have to do it out of a sense of abundance out of a sense of I, so, you know, I, I come across somebody who's in need of charity and I've, and I've got abundance. 
because of the way that God's blessed me, because of the, the hard work that I've put into my life or whatever the case might be, right? I come across this person who needs it. I, on, on the needs-based theory of justice, I'm going to think I don't deserve this. I am guilty until I give him what he needs of the excess that I'm able to, right? And, and that's going to be a completely different phenomenon psychologically and in terms of how I glorify God with it than the ideal, what I would say, which is I, I've been blessed, same, same scenario, but instead it's because I've been blessed by God who has overflowed in grace towards me, now I want to paint a picture of that and overflow in undeserved grace towards this person. He doesn't deserve it. And if he, if he tries to pretend that he deserves it, like if he says, yeah, you should have given that to me, I'm not going to give it to him until he understands, no, you don't deserve this, but I'm giving it to you as a gift. And the reason I'm doing it is so that you'll understand and so that this can be a picture of God giving me Christ as a gift because I did not deserve that, right? And that's, the, what, that's what our giving, that's what charity is supposed to be. It's supposed to be a picture of the gospel. And so mm-hmm. if we allow it to be a picture of something that's deserved, then we're lying about the gospel because we're saying we deserve Christ from God because we needed it, right? Yeah. So that, that's what's at stake here. That, that's what I want to fight for. It, it's really not about government redistribution, as evil and horrendous as that is on other grounds. E- even if you take that apart or take that away, there's the moral gospel issue of glorifying God in our giving by making sure that it really is a picture of undeserved charity, not a picture of deserved merit or justice. There's one other aspect I would add, and that is that it needs to be chosen charity. It needs to be because I made a decision, not because somebody else made a decision, not because somebody said, oh, well, this is just the way right and wrong are. I had to be able to look at the facts myself and make this voluntary assessment that this person, uh, that it would please me, that they would have this thing that I'm going to give them. And Jacob, it reminds me of a point that you've made about 1 Corinthians 13, about what love really is. Uh, you could explain that if you want, or I could sum it. Go ahead and summarize it. Oh, just that, you know, we could do any amount of external actions that that look like love, like even surrendering your own life for the sake of somebody else. But if you have not love, uh, then it's useless, right? So it's just like a sounding gong. So Jacob, once, uh, I think you wrote an article where you pointed out that the implication there is that the kind of love that Paul is advocating in that chapter is not just external. And you hear this in church all the time, aha, love is an action. Well, it has to include something more than that for it to be the kind of love that Paul is describing and advocating. It has to be the kind of love that comes from an individual voluntary assessment of the value of somebody else and and the choice that, uh, and I'm not saying that I'd be stealing if I kept it, but I am saying that I value that other person they are value to me that I legitimately I have objectively assessed them and I've determined that that it would please me that they would have this that's the kind of charitable giving uh, the joyful giver that the Bible talks about yeah there's another aspect to charity that is lost here that I think we we need to try to work to redeem and, and that is that so let's take away the needs-based theory of justice and just focus on the fact that a lot of Christians think that it's your moral obligation well even if they reject the needs-based theory of justice, a lot of Christians would still say, but it's still your moral obligation to always give charitably whenever you have the chance and whenever somebody's in need. And I would say, no, that's not true. 
right? Because I mean, one, we've got biblical example of. Well, I think uh, I think Paul would say that's not true as well. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. we've got lots of biblical precedents for that. But in addition to that, the 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 ideology behind it should be we are stewards of the resources that God has given us, right? We are stewards of our wealth, and it matters how we spend that. If you waste it on giving, you know, a thousand dollars to a drunkard who's going to go and blow it on drugs or alcohol, you you've wasted significant parts of your life, significant things that God has blessed you with. You've poured them down a sewer, basically, and and I think God really does see it that way. If if you give it, if you just mindlessly, you know, it, it's one thing. If you had good reason to think that He was going to use it wisely and He just deceived you, you know, that that's one thing. Mm -hmm. But if if you just say it doesn't matter, I shouldn't have any criteria i should just freely give as anybody needs no matter what no you're 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 being a wasteful you're not being a good steward of the gifts that god has given you 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 should be miserly in that respect in terms of i want to be really really careful to invest every last penny that god's given me as wisely as possible so that it will have the biggest impact for his glory and his kingdom as possible and that's going to change the way that you do charity and it should i think that's the, the mindset that we should have as christians yeah. Um, and to that point, I would say, if you look at second Corinthians, I think it's second Corinthians. Um, let's see. I want to find the exact verse. Well, anyway, Paul, Paul says, he basically says, um, uh, he just, he just tells him not to compel others to give. Um, and, and, and so that kind of confirms what you're saying is and whenever Paul says to compel him not to give. And then also an ax, whenever you see, um, who was it? Uh, Ananias and, uh, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You see that you see that instance where, whenever Peter addresses the fact that they didn't give what they were said they were going to give, he doesn't say you owed it because other people needed it, even though other people probably did need it. He didn't say you owed it because you owed it because other people needed it, and therefore that's why God struck you down, right? No, he says you promised to give it. The point was you lied. Mm -hmm. right. And he had also told them, wasn't it yours to do with whatever you wanted? Yeah. And so he's just affirmed ownership, even in what, you know, the chapter that all the socialists want to claim, oh, yes, this is the, this is embryonic Marxism or yeah. something. <laughs> no, 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 no. Here you have Peter, one of the leaders of the church saying that, that private property is legitimate, just as the Bible has always said. Yeah. And that's, I don't think you can get a stronger statement than that. So it is ironic that they try to use that to push a socialistic yeah. ideology, right? And likewise, you know, Jesus uh, in the parable of the talents, not the talents, the parable of the, the, the workers, you know, you know how he gives all the workers that came different amounts of time, mm -hmm. the same amount of payment, and they complain at the end of the day. And Jesus says, isn't it my money? Well, the, the man in the parable says, isn't it my money to do what I want? Like that, that's Jesus's parable there. Right. Yeah. Well, in my, you know, I, I say this tongue in cheek quite a bit on Twitter. I'm sure you guys have seen me post, tweet a, a version of this, but, you know, uh, my favorite part of the parable of the good Samaritan is uh, when the Samaritan passes by the wounded travel or marches down to Caesar and demands a new social program for wounded yeah. traveling. You know, I mean, the, the entirety of the point of that is the freeness by which he was uh, doing charity. Um, so here is, uh, I don't think it's a particularly good argument, um, but maybe worth you guys addressing kind of the, the rejoinder to that, if you will, that people will always bring up is they'll say, well, the reason that either the government needs to step in uh, or the reason that Christians should 
be compelling people towards charity, right, is because the church isn't doing enough in the world to care for the poor. Um, first of all, I would reject that premise in general, but that's kind of a, a common theme that you'll hear uh, as a rebuttal. So what would you guys say to that? Um, do you think that's, first of all, do you think that's the case? And if so, how do we go about that? Uh, and if it's not the case, what would your response be? There's so many ways to blow that ship out of the water. <laughs> yeah. Take one. Cody, I've got I've got what I think is is a good nuke for that, but I'll let you go first, and then I'll I'll follow up. <laughs> okay, we'll save we'll save the big guns. <laughs> so <laughs> you're making me laugh. Um, all right. So the first thing I I would do is I would just say like, in my mind, I I would ask why is the person arguing this way, like really, and and I and my my mind says okay, do they have a standard for like what would be the amount of charitable giving from the church? For which they would say i no longer want the state to control this and so this is in the background i'm not going to open up by saying those things after i've identified that they're dishonest because obviously they overlooked those two observations uh then i then i would point out to them that uh you know i'd say look you reject the bible don't you you reject god's standards for what the state should do because it says what the state should do in romans 13. Now you claim to love the Bible, but you hate it. And that would be the end of the conversation. I like that. Um, I, I'm going to add, and this is, this is applicable to a lot of stuff, but uh, it just happens to be applicable here. I think too often, a lot of Christians lose sight of what our ultimate mission or duty to God is in this life. And that is, of course, ultimately to glorify God. Meaning if, if there's anything else that you come up with that potentially contradicts that, don't do it and make sure that you don't tell other people to do it. And especially you don't know Christians to do it. Right. So it, it's not our job. It's not our calling. It's not our mission to help the poor. Ultimately mm -hmm. it's our mission to glorify God. And if there are ways that we can help the poor, such that we do it in order to glorify God, great. But if your idea of helping the poor detracts from God's glory by lying about the nature of justice and lying about what is righteous for the government to do and lying about what his word has said and all these other things that we've, we've talked about here, then your helping of the poor doesn't matter at all. It's terrible, it's bad, it's evil, and it's a war against God. And, and let me apply this to something else that Christians often get confused about. It's not even our mission or our calling ultimately to save souls, right? Because this is, this is something that most Christians think, okay, the, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is evangelism or, or if they're a little bit better evangelism and discipleship, right? That, that's a little bit better. Um, and so maybe they think, all right, well, the more the church helps the poor, the more we'll be salt and light and the more we'll attract people so that we can evangelize and disciple them. And so the ultimate is evangelism and discipleship for which they're saying, all right, it doesn't matter how we help the poor. We just have to help the poor. And I'm going to say, no, stop it. <laughs> the ultimate goal is to glorify God. So mm -hmm. if your, if your uh, strategy or program of discipleship and evangelism or of helping the poor detracts from the glory of God by lying about him or by lying about what he has said, then it's it, it's evil, it's wicked, and it's 
on a war path against his glory, you need to stop and repent and don't do it. Mm-hmm. But, but that that requires a, a really, really deep mindset shift of it doesn't matter if we don't win the souls. It doesn't matter if we've got small numbers. It doesn't matter if we uh, look like we're terrible at evangelism. It doesn't matter X, Y, Z if the world thinks that we're evil and miserly and whatever else, none of that matters as long as we're being true to the glory of God. And, and that's something that a lot of Christians, I don't know that they can say, which is sad, but th- that's where we need to get. Yeah. It certainly seems like a lot of people argue that uh, a Christian is to love their neighbor by stealing from one neighbor to give to another neighbor. Yeah. Um, and, and it really is just showing partiality. You know, uh, at the end of the day, uh, ultimately, that's what it that's what it comes down to, I think. Yeah. And and what that is, is it's it's elevating the second greatest commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself uh, at the expense of the first greatest commandment. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. If, if you have to sacrifice obedience to the first commandment by adopting untruths and unrighteousness and unjustice for the sake of the second greatest commandment, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Yeah, you, you never you never see anyone uh, discussing how Christians can better love Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos, you know. Um, but but obviously the commandment isn't just to love our neighbor that's in need, uh, and I, and I think that's one that it, it's so it's so clear and really that's kind of where the argument stops in my view on that particular issue is is you don't really need to go that much deeper into that idea because you're ultimately just showing partiality when you do no, no matter what route you take it, you know, in my view. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> sorry. I was looking at our notes here. Uh, y'all, y'all saw some of our notes there. Uh, <laughs> at one point Dave puts, what's the intersection and he puts it in quotes and the next tweet, he puts gay word <laughs> because the, you know, obviously the leftists use the word intersection for, for a number of, ridiculous things but anyway but anyway sorry about that i got, I got we're real, we're real serious in our show notes guys <laughs> i don't know if y'all can tell yeah it's very uh got a little distracted but anyway in in the, in that particular note um dave i don't know if you want to explain this a little bit more about about the question that you have on this um but um i, I know that you were wondering about um their thoughts about the difference between like Rand and, and Amy Peikoff's capitalism versus the more paleo version of capitalism. I don't think we hit on that yet. Did, did we, or, uh, um, well, I think they actually did it. So, so I think the argument that Cody and Jacob are making really is just a, a, a Christian argument here, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it really did kind of, it really did kind of cover that, um, initially. So the, the note that you're referring to is, Obviously, you guys come from a more libertarian uh, school of thought on some of these issues from a philosophical standpoint. Um, so how would that, how could Christians that don't necessarily share that view, we'll, we'll say like the more Christian nationalist types, uh, think the theonomy bros, the general equity theonomy bros, those kind of guys. Um, do you guys view this as a um, area of agreement or do you guys think that the that system in general is kind of necessarily just maybe a different side to the left's coin it, it, does that make sense kind of a poorly phrased question but i think you guys get what i'm getting at with that 
It's really on our mind lately because on Twitter, there has been a coalescing around uh, a new form of traditional conservatism and concern, especially about response to very large amount of immigration. And there's uh, like, for example, on your show, uh, you had Stephen Wolf and, and Thomas Acord, and they were discussing mm -hmm. uh, the, the need for loving your place. And I listened to the whole episode and I've listened to several of their episodes on their podcast. And, uh, and and John Harris, I would say he's a, he calls himself a traditionalist, and I I'm friends with John, and I I follow almost everything he does all the time, and I, I love just about everything that I see on his podcast. But sometimes on a, on a tweet or two, I'll I'll disagree, and uh, usually it's uh, my concern is that I would like there to be more clarity about the principle behind what he's advocating, because it's one thing to say, hey, you know, we should we should value our own family and our own city, and we should value our traditions. Well, I'm not going to argue against that. Jacob and I have discussed this in depth. Like, where where do we really disagree with John if we do? Uh, but I mean, it's it's an interesting topic, but it's it's not one that we have fleshed out fully. I think Jacob might have more opinions on it than I do. So th there's a number of issues that coalesce there, uh, and I I'll struggle to name them all. But so Cody mentioned traditionalism there, and I think that's one of the big ones is uh, the the pull towards sort of the tradcom traditionalism. Uh, and that's what Thomas Acord and, and Stephen Wolf and, and to some extent John Harris have been advocating recently is is a form of traditionalism. And I, I think our major problem with it, my major problem with it, I'll speak for myself, is I want to I want to know what exactly do you mean there? Because what I'm going to say is tradition ultimately doesn't matter for anything. And, and the ultimately there is important. Right. So uh, especially when we're talking about identifying truth or moral principles. If, if, if my traditional upbringing or my family heritage or whatever is objectively bad, then it's objectively bad, regardless of if it's my tradition or not, right? And if it's objectively good, then it's objectively good, right? regardless of it. So ultimately, tradition doesn't matter. Now, having said that, if you're just not sure, like you haven't identified the moral principles yet, so you don't know how to judge your tradition versus other traditions, then it makes sense to have an affinity toward your own tradition, towards what you're familiar with, what you grew up with. That That's perfectly natural. That's potentially a good thing until you reach an age of maturity, a certain age of maturity. And I'm, and I'm not going to say, you know, a specific age here, but the, the mature person, the mature man eventually comes to the point of standing back from what is familiar, what feels good, what maybe even his tradition is, and says, what is true? What is objectively the case? And how does what I'm familiar with line up with that? And it may be that it lines up perfectly with it. And if that's the case, then amen, hallelujah, that's awesome, stick with it. But, but at that point, when you, when you get to that level of maturity where you stand back and you're, you're taking your focus away from the tradition and saying, what's true, whether my tradition lines up with it or not, at that point then, tradition is not ultimate. At that point, then tradition should not matter. What matters is what is objectively true. And then the tradition is good or bad, depending on how well it aligns with the truth. And what I'm concerned about is that we're, we're advocate because the left is so anti-tradition and because the left is obviously evil, we have this sort of knee-jerk association of saying, okay, well, if, if the left is evil and the left is anti-tradition, then the opposite of that should be good. And the opposite of anti-tradition is pro-tradition, right? And so it's, it's sort of like a knee-jerk reaction to the opposite extreme 
where really the reason the left is evil is not because they reject tradition as such. It's because they reject objective truth, which happens to be part of our tradition in the West, right? Um, so the, the way to fight the left is not to embrace tradition mindlessly. It's to embrace objective truth, whether our tradition aligns with it or not. And that's what I'm concerned about is that a lot of these TradCon guys who righteously want to combat the left are making a mistake or a category error and they are latching on to, to tradition as such so in such a way that they're going to miss objective truth and ways in which their tradition might contradict objective truth. And, and that's a recipe for disaster long-term as well. Does that make sense? 100%. I think, um, too, I think there's an emotional element to it as well in the sense that, uh, and you kind of hit on this a little bit, but but we can look at the Western tradition and Western capitalism more in general, right? When I'm, when I'm speaking of, of the Western tradition um, and we can see early on the grounding of that in um, more biblical principles and biblical categories, right? Not perfectly by any means, but but more so than when you contrast that with you know, it's easy to look at like Marx and Engels view and the stuff that's then been extrapolated from that. And we can look at both the ideological underpinnings of that as well as the fruit of it. And it's easy to just say, okay, well, obviously this is very, very far from anything that a Christian would recognize, right? It's maybe not quite as easy to do that with tradition Western capitalism uh, for two reasons. One being the foundation of it in general. And then two being obviously that's what the majority of us grew up in, you know, a version of. So I think maybe there's a, there's a maybe undue uh, weight given to emotion uh, there as well. Would you guys kind of think that's, that's fair uh, or not so much? I think so. It, it's definitely that there's, there's a sort of nostalgia that goes along with, you know, th this is, this is my place, my home. This is what's familiar to me. Uh, but then also, uh, like you said, it's 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 an easy argument to make. It's easier to say, well, this is just the way that it's always been, or this is our tradition. So, th and that's the end of the argument, right? Th then you don't have to get into detailed arguments about the nature of justice because you rely on, well, this is what tradition says. Boom, that's it. That settles it, right? So it, it, there's probably a mixture of some nostalgic, emotional ties which aren't entirely evil in themselves when i say emotional here i'm not saying sinful necessarily uh emotions are only simple when they blind you to reality which is what i'm concerned could start happening in these cases but as such the 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 emotional attachment to what's familiar can be very good so long as it's not blinding to reality so i think there's a combination of that and a, um uh i don't want to say intellectual laziness potentially just an intellectual lethargy uh, or, or an intellectual inability to make the more robust arguments on the nature of justice and things like that because we haven't been equipped with it. Our, our, our church upbringing or even our secular upbringing um, have conspired against us in our, in our ability to think about uh, principles like what is the nature of justice and things like that. So it's just easier to fall back on an argument like tradition. But the problem is that the fact that it's easier is also going to be the, the sort of Achilles heel of it because 
it's going to be a lot easier for the left to combat. It's going to be a lot easier for the left to overthrow that because it's such a weak argument. And it's obviously weak because it, we wouldn't we wouldn't do that on other things, right? If if I grew up in a cannibalistic culture where the tradition was eating babies, I, I'm obviously not going to say, well, that's automatically righteous. And so it's it, there's just an obvious way of rebutting it that's going to make it so that no one who's thinking carefully is going to take that line of thought seriously in the long term, which means it's going to be defeated in the long term. And so, you know, in, in care for my my tradcom brothers, I want to say, please come up with better arguments. Uh, you know, ground yourself in 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 something that's got deep roots rather than these flimsy arguments that they may work on Twitter with the blue-haired leftist feminists, but they're not going to work two days from now or two years from now with someone who's actually thinking through these things carefully. And, and they're not going to convince people that grew up in that tradition and have left it either. Um, which, which maybe is the bigger uh, danger there, I would say, you know. I was going to say there's a theme that uh, Jacob and I would have in our engagement with the Tradcons, which is that we often agree with the conclusion of what the kind of policies we want advocated in the next 10 years or 20, 50 years or whatever. But we are disagreeing with the method of argumentation and we're disagreeing with the way they perceive the intellectual landscape. And one issue that I would highlight to, to illustrate that is that the Tradcons will often look at the leftists and they'll say that the leftists are advocates of individualism and individual ex, expressive individualism is the term that the TGC authors are now using. Yeah. And what they mean by expressive individualism is now you can sleep with whoever you want and you can call whatever you want right and wrong. And that's, that's they're using the word individualism to mean that. And um, and so then the Tradcons are, in, in a way, they're, they're in agreement with some of the Marxists that are also, or some of the, uh, some of the squishy moderates that are, that are calling that individualism. So they're all calling that individualism. And Jacob and I look at that and say, no, that's not individualism. And it sounds, at least in some of the cases, it sounds like the framework that the Tradcons are using to combat the leftists is, let's have a different sort of collectivism than you leftists have. And we don't want to advocate a different sort of collectivism. And you can see that, I mean, in the alt-right, that alt-right is a collectivist reaction to collectivism on the left. And so, it says, oh yeah, well, and, and, we're, we're going to be proud and white and we're going to go back to farming because obviously banks are evil. That's, that's their mindset. Yeah, they're not particularly shy about it either, you know, <laughs> uh, which is something I think a lot of people miss uh, and the more... Um, just people that haven't really looked into that much, but yeah, they're quite open about it. Yeah. And so, the, and the collectivism is what they share in common with the leftists culturally or socially, but then the, the more important and fundamental thing that they share in common with the leftists is the epistemological relativism, right? So the leftists are relativists, both epistemologically and morally by saying, you know, whatever feels good is right or whatever is culturally diverse is right. Whereas the uh, tradcons, the, you know, the, the really bad ones are going to say, well, whatever's historical is right, or whatever is uh, historical to my tribe is right. That those are both relativistic. They're, they're both uh, anti-objective truth, both in, in reason and in morality. Um, and, and they both treat morality and ideas in a sort of arbitrary and subjective way. And so that 
we, we want to stand against both of those and say, no, the, the reason the leftists are wrong is because they're relativists and collectivists, and we want to fight relativism and collectivism. And you don't do that by adopting a different brand of relativism and collectivism. Yeah, and I think this comes back to why capitalism is the only moral system. Because, uh, because as, as I know you say sometimes, uh, Jacob, the, uh, your, your property is an extension of yourself. So whenever, you, whenever you're working and you're, you're earning things, whenever somebody takes those things, they're actually taking a part of you, which is why you know, it doesn't matter if the collectivism is on, on the left or on the right. It doesn't matter what, uh, maybe this isn't the correct word, but it doesn't matter what ultimate value you're pushing if you're doing it by forcing others um, through the threat, particularly through the threat of government guns or, or something along those lines um, to participate in it by saying that you don't actually own your, the, the uh, product of your labor, right? Mm-hmm. Then it's, it's, it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. And, and here's what Cody and I are concerned about, right? And, and in some ways, uh, Leonard Peikoff, uh, predicted this, or, or at least attempted to predict this, something like this, not in as much detail. But what we're concerned about is there's there's these two very popular groups now, and in some ways populist groups, the left and the right, the trad cons and the social justice warriors, and they have the surface level appearance of being absolutely arbit- are absolutely uh, opposed to each other on every level, but that's only on the surface. When you dig just a little bit below the surface there's a lot of agreement on on uh, epistemological and moral relativism on social collectivism and then therefore on certain political things like minimum wage and like healthcare is a right and all, all these so that we're concerned that there's going to be a bipartisan uh push towards certain types of marxism and the, the only difference is going to be whether it's going to be a blue-haired feminist marxism or a white supremacist Marxism. But regardless, there's going to be a Marxism, right? That, that's the direction that we're going because there is this bipartisan agreement on those fundamental issues. So to kind of sum everything up, um, unless you have something else, uh, Dave, and let me know as I'm, as I'm speaking here, um, to kind of sum everything up, because we're coming up to about an hour and a half here, so we're probably getting ready to close it. Um, on, on that point, you know, or on the, what we just talked about for like the last five, 10 minutes here. Um, how, what are your thoughts on like how we should work together if we can ultimately work together? Cause y'all have kind of talked about the long-term problems of, of where this traditional conservatism or uh, uh, leads. Um, but, but what are y'all's thoughts on like how we can work together going forward? Cause I know obviously I'm 99% sure that y'all voted for Trump this time around. So y'all aren't of, of the, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I got my, I got my, uh, where did I do with my hat? Oh, no, nope, I don't know where it is anyway. But, uh, um, I'm like 99% sure y'all voted for Trump this time around. So, so, so obviously you aren't of the mindset of we should be, we should reject everyone that doesn't fit this specific standard of individualism when it comes to politics and, and culture. And, and we should, we should fight to them just as hard as we fight the left. I'm um, at least in the short term. Um, so, so what are kind of your thoughts on, on, on how, um, how do I put this? Uh, like what, what common ground Dave put it as what common ground should we seek and how do we get there in your view, whenever it comes to 
actual actions in politics, like voting and that sort of thing, and also when it comes to arguing with them against the cultural Marxism of the left. So this is a strategic question, and right. the, the yep. strategy of this is you have to think in terms of immediate goals for which you can be a co-belligerent with somebody, and then longer-term goals. And I would say that the goal for me is to be an ally to somebody who disagrees with me on some of the foundational issues in the short run until we can avert totalitarian dictatorship. And if we believe that we've done what we can to avert that, then there's going to be free speech, which is going to allow me to debate with these people that I disagree with. So in the meantime, uh, it's a good idea if I can get to know them personally, you know, have them on my YouTube channel, talk to them on the phone. And that way, when we're on Twitter and we disagree, the immediate response to a disagreement is, oh, I can't believe you. I'm going to ridicule you. You're so ridiculous. Uh, and why, why would we want to do that to somebody who is 99% of the time saying things that are actually helpful to your own cause? So it's why, kind why of fun we, sometimes, though. I mean, it can be. And it just depends on how well you know the person and, and what the, the, the point is. Yeah, but, yeah. I mean, there have been times in the past where I said to somebody, you know, hey, you're being, you know, you're just absolutely out of line here. This is unacceptable. I hate this. This is horrible. You're, you're a bad person. And then I realized later on, if I had got to know that guy a little better, I'd have realized I disagreed with him very, very strongly about one point. And now he's never going to want to talk to me again, even though he agrees with me on all these other things. And so it was not good strategy. And so uh, I would recommend mm -hmm. there's a AD Robles has something called the Robles rules of order. And he gives you like 10 or 12 scripturally supported principles for how and when you should disagree. So you, yeah, you can find that at adrobles.com and you just get on his email list and, and you'll get a download for it. But he and I worked on it together and um, that helped me think through, hey, what do you, you know, you have to classify people as friends or as allies or as just neighbors. And, and then there's a, a final category, a fourth category of enemies. And if they're not in that enemy, enemy category, treat them at least as a neighbor as much as possible. So, and in addition to that, this is less strategy and more just uh, sort of principled way of ad addressing things. I, I think that the best way to interact with each other as brothers, especially to the extent that we agree on some things, but then disagree on others, is let's just try to, as best we can, have honest debate about the things that we disagree with, especially to the extent that they, they seem important to us, or uh, even more so to the extent that we think that they impact the things that we agree on, right? So let's say, you know, we, me and, and some TradCon guy agree that, uh, I don't know, that capitalism is the ideal, but then he, he uh, has his TradCon reasons for it and I've got my other reasons for it. Um, to the extent that each of us thinks that our reasons undermine that ideal that we agree on, we should be engaged in lively discussion about it, whether privately or publicly, you know, what, what do we agree to? But the, the best thing in any of those scenarios is going to be honest, vigorous, healthy engagement of the ideas where we are genuinely laboring to say, all right, if I'm wrong, I want to be proven wrong. And if I'm right, I want to be proven right, right? Because I, everyone's going to win in that scenario, right? I, I, I really do believe that in every conflict that I get into with anybody, whether it's on Twitter or in person or whatever, it, if I'm wrong about something, I really, really genuinely want to be proven wrong about it because mm -hmm. I'm going to win in the long run. I, I want to be aligned with reality. I want to, I want to believe what's true, not what's false. Right. 
um, because you're never going to be happy kicking against reality. Um, so if I can, whatever I can do to try to cultivate that mindset in other people and help to convince other people, look, you don't have to hold so strongly to your vision of reality uh, such that you're unable to even debate it or unable to even have open dialogue about it. Mm-hmm. You, you can kind of let go and, and trust whatever's true is going to be what's best for me. And, and that kind of frees you up to say, all right, I, I'm willing to engage the ideas. I'm willing to engage the objections here and see, am I wrong about this? I, I, it doesn't mean that you go into it saying, I know I'm wrong with that false humility. You go into it rationally saying, as far as I know, I'm right about this. But if I've missed something and if my brother here can point it out, God bless him. Good. Um, all right. I think that's, that's about it. Did you have anything else to add, Dave? Uh, any no, other questions stuff. for him? Um, uh, nope. I, I think that, that more or less covers it guys. Uh, definitely. Thanks for coming on. Good stuff for sure. Uh, we would love to have you guys on again, uh, maybe for more on this or, or a different topic. Uh, there's obviously no shortage of stuff we could talk about. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just add on that last category. Um, you know, you guys specifically, you two, uh, have kind of helped me grow a lot in that category, uh, just in, in past run-ins that we've had uh, and stuff like that. Because um, obviously nobody agrees on everything, right? And I think that way of thinking through these issues is something that everybody really should be moving towards, um, you know. So uh, good stuff there. And Matt, back to you. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree, I, especially with uh, a lot of the stuff on uh, altruism, that sort of thing. And in, in the past, y'all have helped a lot to uh, y'all have been a real blessing. The the for the new Christian intellectual in general has been a real, real blessing in that area because um, there were some ideas that that I kind of had, um, like. Like, I think I've generally always believed that you're supposed to advocate in your self-interest because it just makes sense. And But there are a lot of connections that, that have been made over time that led there. And then also your work with, like we spoke about earlier, on needs-based justice um, um, and and how that relates to the gospel and such. Um, I think that's really important important stuff that that not a lot of people are are pointing to. And there's people pointing it to on the opposite side, right? There's, you have the Tim Kellers of the world trying to make the opposite argument that it's a gospel issue that we believe in needs-based justice, which they're not really making a rational argument for. It's more of an emotional one that's not attached to reality. But, um, but there's not a lot of people addressing that point, right? They just say, you know, they'll just, they'll just try to separate it from the gospel, which to some extent it is separate from the gospel, but they'll just try to separate it from the gospel and say, this is not a gospel issue because you know, it's, it's not a part of the gospel message, but y'all look at it and say, well, no, actually it is because what they're doing is distorting the gospel by pushing these particular things. So that's been really helpful. Um, and, and, uh, I think if, if anybody wants to check y'all out, they can go to christianintellectual.com, right? Right. Yeah. Christianintellectual.com and, um, for the new Christian intellectual is your uh, YouTube channel. Y'all should check that out. Uh, they've got a, a lot of really good videos on everything we talked about here today, pretty much. Um, um, so check that out, uh, subscribe to them, hit the notifications bell. So you get notifications when they have new stuff going up and you can find Jacob, you're on Twitter at Jacob T. Brunton. That's right. And Cody, you're at Cody Libel, right? That's right. Awesome. And you can find me at Matt Travis blog. Almost messed it up there. We're really bad with, with Twitter names. It's tradition. <laughs> we, we we just can't get away from holding to that one tradition, guys. Yeah. Messing up <laughs> our right. Twitter name. <laughs> yep, yep. That's part of being a basically genius. 
is. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, my, mine changes every three months, so I at least have an excuse. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's good stuff. It'll never, never get old. Never gets yeah. old getting getting banned by the big tech oligarchs. It's, it's great. Uh, yeah, and then obviously, guys, y'all can find me. Uh, I'm Dave. I'm at Agent of Polemics uh, on Twitter as well. Sweet. But uh, yeah, thanks for coming on, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is great. Thank you.